What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Emotional needs and physical needs and spiritual needs. And, and these are the four needs that, that each one of us have. And, and we noted as Jesus meets these four different needs, not only how great it is that he does that, but also the way in which we should respond because he is a God who meets those needs. And, and last week we saw the first two needs that, that Jesus addresses in this chapter. First, we see him meeting the intellectual need of Martha. And, and second, we see him meeting the emotional need of Mary. And we learned two important and amazing things about Jesus and how we should respond to him. First, we learn that Jesus has the wisdom to meet our greatest intellectual needs. And because of that, we should come to him with them. You know, if we realize that he can meet those needs, we should bring those needs to him. And second, we learn that Jesus has the sensitivity to meet our greatest emotional needs. And in the same way, bring those emotional needs to Jesus, knowing that he can meet whatever emotional need you have. Well, this morning we're going to look at the next two needs that Jesus meets. We're going to see him meet probably the greatest physical need that anyone could have, a man named Lazarus who's now dead. Uh, what a great physical need that he has. Uh, and also we're going to see Jesus meet the spiritual needs of those who are there mourning at Lazarus' tomb. Uh, and we're going to learn some important things about how we should respond to both of these types of needs when we have them. Now, last week we ended with how Jesus responded to Mary's emotional need. And if you remember, Mary comes and she falls down at Jesus' feet. She's weeping there in front of Jesus. And when Jesus responded to Martha, he gave her some intellectual truth about who he is and what he would do. But with Mary, he just joined her in weeping. He just cried with her and he helped meet her emotional need, just going and being where she was at. And, and we ended with those powerful words, Jesus wept. But I want you to think that all those people who were there at the tomb, who were there mourning over Lazarus, they have now seen Jesus weeping. And so as we pick up this morning, we're picking up with the response that people have to this reality that Jesus is now there, but just like Mary and just like Martha and just like many others, he joins in weeping for the loss of Lazarus. And so let's see how Jesus' crowd here responds to his weeping. John chapter 11, picking up in verse 36, we're told this. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So here we see two different responses to what just happened where Jesus is weeping over Lazarus' death. And the first response that we see is from a group that says, see how he loved him. You know, so what they're saying is, you know, Jesus is weeping reveals to us just how much he loved 
Lazarus. And this is something that we see all the time. And, you know, you go to a funeral and typically, not always, but typically, you know, there, there's a, a reality that those who are really just weeping are the ones who had that real close, deep, loving relationship with the one who passed away. And if you weren't close to that person, but maybe you knew someone who was at the funeral and you kind of just show up and maybe you didn't know the person who died at all, you know, you're not going to have the same kind of tears or emotions. You might not cry at all because that loving relationship relationship wasn't there. But for those who were family, for those who were friends, for those who had that deep relationship of love, there's usually a lot of tears. There's usually a lot of emotion and people associate those two things together. They say, hey, look how much they love them because of the tears. And that's what they're saying of Jesus. Look how much he loved Lazarus because he's weeping over Lazarus's death. So tears are one way that can demonstrate how much Someone loves you. But you know what? Jesus demonstrated his love for us in a much greater, much more powerful way than just his tears. And that's something important for us to understand because the greatest demonstration of Jesus' love for us is not that he cries for us. It's that he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus is saying, hey, the greatest demonstration of love, the greatest way that you can show someone that you love them is to die for them, to give your life for them. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, the Bible's making very clear the greatest demonstration of love that Jesus showed us isn't his tears, it's the fact that he willingly sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. So if the mourners can say of Jesus towards Lazarus, see how he loved him because of Jesus' weeping, how much more should we be able to say of Jesus towards us, see how he loves us, because we look to the cross and see that powerful demonstration of love. So the first response that people had when they saw Jesus weep because of Lazarus' death is they say, hey, see how Jesus loved Lazarus. But then the second group has a little bit of a different response. They say, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? You know, what this group is saying is that, you know, we've seen Jesus do miraculous things. We've seen him open the eyes of blind people. So surely, considering Jesus' clear love for Lazarus, if he was here before Lazarus died, he could have kept him from dying. You know, this is a similar statement that we saw from Mary and Martha as we looked at last week when they said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary and Martha were convinced that Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus. They were convinced that if Jesus would have shown up before Lazarus died, that Jesus would have healed Lazarus and that Lazarus wouldn't have died. And this crowd is basically echoing that same sentiment that, Jesus, we've seen that you have power to heal blind people. Surely you could have healed Lazarus' sickness if only you were here in time to do it. Now, something important to note about both these groups of Mary and Martha and the crowd is that they all believe that Jesus could heal Lazarus while Lazarus was alive, but they also both agree that Jesus can't do anything more for Lazarus now that he's dead. Oh, if you would have been here while he was still alive in his sickness, you could have done something for him, Jesus, but now it's over. 
Now he's dead. Now you don't have the power to do anything anymore because Lazarus passed away. Let's see how Jesus responds to all of this in verse 38. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now remember last week in verse uh, 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and she saw everyone around the tomb weeping, we're told he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And now this year we come to verse 38. Once again, we're told he groaned in himself as he came to the tomb. So twice we're told that Jesus is kind of groaning within himself over the circumstances that are surrounding the death of Lazarus and the weeping of those who are in pain because of the loss of Lazarus. But something interesting to note here is that this Greek word translated groaning actually means to have anger and indignation. And so it really would be better to translate that Jesus was angry within himself. And he's not angry at Lazarus or angry at the people for weeping. He's angry at death. He's angry at sin because the consequence of sin is death. He's angry at what death has brought to mankind, what sin has brought to mankind, the pain, the weeping, the suffering, all that he sees around him surrounding the death of Lazarus. That is something that moved him with indignation because it's the most destructive power and one of the greatest enemies against humanity. One of the greatest reasons why Jesus came to this earth to begin with. You see, death is something that all of us will face. It brings pain. It brings hardship. But you know what? It's a consequence. A consequence of sin. Back all the way in Genesis chapter 2, the beginning of the Bible, we're told, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. All the way back in the garden, when God tells you know, Adam, Hey, of all these trees you can eat, there's only one command that I'm giving you. Do not eat of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. Because if you disobey me in this area, if you sin, the consequence is going to be death. You see, God's original creation was perfect. It was sinless. There was no death. There was no death with people. There was no death with animals. The only reason that death entered was because of Adam and Eve's sin. That's why Romans 3.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. What sin has earned us is what God warned all the way back in Genesis. You disobey me and you sin, it will bring death to you. Our sin has brought us many horrible things, many consequences, but one of the worst ones is death. And the main reason that Jesus came to this world was to deal with our sin problem and the consequence that it brings, not only physical death, but also spiritual death. And he did that on the cross. You know, if you love someone, you're going to be angered by something that hurts them. 
You're going to be angered by something that destroys them. And that's why Jesus is moved. He loves these people and he's watching how death is destroying, how death is causing this pain and this weeping. And he's moved with indignation. He's moved with anger within himself because he's so tired of seeing the consequence all the way back to the garden to now of what sin has brought upon mankind. And he's about to actually in less than a week from this time of, or a little over a week, sorry, of this time that this happens. He is himself going to be sacrificed on a cross. He's himself going to give his life to deal with sin and to deal with death. So Jesus is, is moved with this anger. He's moved with this indignation over the effects of sin and death on mankind. And he comes to Lazarus' tomb. And notice what he does, starting in verse 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So when Jesus now gets to Lazarus' tomb, he gives a command to those who were there. He tells them to take away the stone. Now, I think it's important to remember, remember Martha and Mary and the crowd, they don't believe that Jesus can do anything now for Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is, is past the point of help. He's dead. And so this request would seem quite odd. Like, why in the world would you want us to remove this tombstone uh, from, you know, this man who is behind it dead? You know, they're probably thinking, you know, this is a, a strange request, but maybe Jesus is so moved with grief, he just wants to see Lazarus one final time. Well, Martha, she feels like, I have some important information for you, Jesus, because of your odd request here. You know what? My brother has been dead for four days, and he's going to smell. His body is decomposing in this tomb, and so if we remove this stone, you know, it's going to stink really bad. You know, the smell of a decomposing body is awful. You know, when I did pest control a few years ago, pretty much the thing that all technicians hated the most was getting called out to a house that somewhere in the attic there was some kind of dead rodent or dead animal. And usually the only way that the person knew that is because of the smell that finally came into their house. And so that animal was most likely dead for days. And I remember finding a huge rat in one attic and it was just, you know, it had maggots and all sorts of things, but it just smelled so awful. And it's in a, you know, an attic that's like 125 degrees. Uh, and so the decomposing body is horrible. It was really something that almost made me throw up. I had to come back down, get a deep breath before I went back up to get that thing. But, you know, the human body is even worse of a smell than a rat. And so you can understand Martha's objection. Well, <laughs> Jesus, if we take away this stone, Man, it's going to smell. And if really the only reason you're wanting to do it is kind of maybe get your last view of Lazarus, you know what? You don't want to see him like this. Now, remember from last week, Jesus just met with Martha. 
And when he met with Martha, remember she had that intellectual struggle, and Jesus shared with her something about himself and also something that he would do. Remember he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So as Martha objects to what Jesus is asking for everyone to do of moving the tomb or moving the stone from the tomb, Jesus reminds her of the conversation they had, what he told her about himself, what he told her that, that he would do. And he says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Martha, remember when we had that conversation and I told you I am the resurrection and the life? Remember when I told you anybody who believes in me, though he were dead, he will live? And I asked you, do you believe in that? And her response was, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the the Son of God. Well, great, Martha. You, You say you believe, and now it's time to put that belief in action. Because I'm not asking to to open up this tomb so I can see Lazarus. I'm asking you to open up this tomb because I am going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I want you to believe in what I told you about myself, that I am the resurrection and the life. And I believe at this moment that Martha is recalling just moments ago as they had that conversation and just recognizing, you know what, now I get it. Open up this tomb. Allow Jesus to do His work. I believe in Him and what He's capable of doing. So she allows the stone to be removed and then we're told that Jesus lifted His eyes and He starts to pray. Father, I thank You that You have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. So once the stone is removed and Jesus looks to heaven and he starts praying, and this prayer really isn't in order to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus could just do what he's about to do. The prayer was for the people. And he specifically says that within the prayer. Father, I'm I'm asking this of you. I know that you always hear me, but the reason I am praying to you aloud so that all these people can hear is because I want them to know that you sent me. When they see what I'm about to do and they connect it with the prayer that I've just prayed, I want them to associate my power with where it comes from, the Father. And so he's praying aloud so the people can hear, so the people will recognize that the miracle that Jesus is about to do proves that the Father sent him to this earth. Now when Jesus finishes his prayer, notice what he does. We're told he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus spoke to a dead body as if Lazarus was alive. Now, for anyone else to do this, this would just be such an odd thing. I mean, go into a graveyard and, you know, reading, you know, the name on the tombstone and be like, John Doe, come forth. I mean, any of us doing that would just sound so foolish because, like, what do you think you're doing? What do you think? Someone's going to come out of the grave? The fact that Jesus speaks to Lazarus like you would to a person alive, even though he's dead, once again shows that he's God. Romans 4.17 tells us, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's what Jesus is doing. Here's this dead person and I'm calling him to come out of this grave. And Lazarus who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to the people at the tomb, loose him and let him go. 
And we read this and it's like, oh, this is so amazing. But it probably was a little bit eerie and weird as well. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you see maybe movies like The Mummy or something like that. I mean, here is literally like someone who's coming out looking like that, bound hand and foot in grave clothes. They would wrap them like they do mummies. You know, he didn't get, you know, resurrected where all that was off of him. He's kind of, you know, getting this self out there. And so this would be pretty crazy if you see this guy coming out of the tomb. And he probably does really smell. You know, I mean, I don't know if, uh, you know, that smell was just, you know, miraculously removed by Jesus. Jesus, he, he, he comes out, and then Jesus tells the people, loose him, let him go. What an amazing experience that must have been as they start unwrapping Lazarus. Maybe some of them are starting to worry, like, what's he going to look like? What's it going to be? And then to see the man who was dead for four days, now whole, now alive, now able to speak to them, especially for Mary and Martha, how amazing that must have been. But you know, this miracle... It shows that Jesus has the power to bring someone who's dead back to life. And that's a a wonderful thing. It's an amazing miracle. It's definitely something that helps prove that Jesus is who He claimed to be, God. But you know what? When Jesus rises from the dead Himself, that's going to show that Jesus has power over death completely. You see, there's a difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. You could actually probably call more accurately Lazarus a resuscitation and Jesus a resurrection because the reality is, sadly for Lazarus, all the pain and suffering, all the problems of dying, guess what? He's going to go through that again. Lazarus was raised, but he's going to die who knows how long, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. Lazarus is going to face death again. Jesus, on the other hand, when he rose, he rose forever. He's never going to die again. And so there's a very big difference between the resurrection of Jesus and Lazarus, and it's Jesus' resurrection that proves to us He has the power over death, the power to raise us to never die again and live with Him for eternity in heaven. Well, this brings us to the third important and amazing thing about Jesus that I want you to note. Remember last week we looked at the first two with Martha and with Mary, and now we see the third thing. That Jesus has the power to meet our greatest physical needs, so come to Him with your physical struggles. You know, if Jesus can take a person who's been dead for four days and physically bring them back to life, is there anything physically in your life He can't handle? If He can do that... Is there anything that you would say, you know what, I don't know if you can take care of this, Lord, or I don't know if you can deal with that, God. We should come to Him recognizing He has the power to meet any physical need that we have. That's not a guarantee that you know He's always going to meet every physical need, but you know what? He has the power to. And we'd be crazy not to come to Him with our needs and look to Him to meet them. What Jesus has done really up to this point in time is the most amazing miracle so far in His ministry. And remember, John is using only seven particular signs or miracles in his gospel. And the purpose of each one of them, as he tells us, is so that people would believe that Jesus is God. And up to now, this is the most powerful one of all. Up to now, if you look at all the miracles that Jesus did, if you want to say which one demonstrates He is God in the most powerful way, right here. Bringing someone who's been dead for four days back to life. Only God can do that. I mean, that word would spread and people would have to come to a conclusion that there is the greatest evidence that we've seen so far in Jesus' life that He is who He claimed to be, the Messiah, the Savior, the God 
of creation. Well, now we're going to see the response that people have to this amazing miracle of Jesus, because as I note, it's a powerful evidence that Jesus is God. So how are they going to respond to the raising of Lazarus from the dead? And as we look at these responses, we're going to see how Jesus meets our greatest need of all, and that is our spiritual need for salvation. You see, all of us have intellectual needs, and we have emotional needs, and we have physical needs. And as we've noted with our three points, we should bring those to Jesus, but we have a need far greater than any of those. Because none of those needs have eternity in the balance. None of those needs determine where we're going to spend our eternity, whether it's in heaven or whether it's in hell. The only one that determines that is our great spiritual need of salvation. And so we're going to learn something important with how Jesus meets the needs of people who are there at the tomb. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in Him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Well, now we have two different responses again. We saw two different responses just a moment ago with Jesus is weeping. And now we see two different responses towards Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And these two different responses are going to directly impact what Jesus can do for the spiritual needs of the people that are responding to this. The first group, it's composed of many who saw, who came, they were at this tomb because they came to weep with Mary. They loved Lazarus. That's the reason that they were there. And they experienced this amazing miracle. And we're told when they had seen the things that Jesus did, they believed in Him. So the first group, when they see this, they see this amazing miracle. Maybe they're part of unwrapping Lazarus and just seeing this man who is dead come back to life. They recognize who Jesus is. They realize that He is God, and they, for the first time, put their belief in who He is. And that choice to put their faith in Jesus enables Jesus to meet their greatest spiritual need, which is salvation from their sins. You see, there's only one way the Bible tells us for you and I to have our greatest spiritual need met. And that is through putting our belief and who Jesus is, that He is God, and what He has done for us, that He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. If you remember back in John chapter 3, we have one of the most famous and most quoted verses in John 3.16, but also in verse 17 and verse 18, we were given some wonderful truths that really shine a bright light on what we're looking at here. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
You know, these verses clearly tell us something that is so vital for us. It, it just is directly focusing on our greatest need, which is our spiritual need. They tell us whoever believes in Jesus is not going to perish in hell, but instead will have everlasting life in heaven. That those who believe in Jesus will not be condemned for their sin, but those who do not believe in Jesus will be condemned for their sin. You see, where you spend your eternity and whether or not you're condemned for your sin is based on one thing and one thing alone. Whether you're willing to choose to believe in who Jesus is and what He's done for you and for me on the cross. Those who put their faith in Jesus will not be condemned and not perish in hell. And those who do put their faith in Jesus, or those who put their faith will not be, and those who don't will be. So whether or not you put your faith in Jesus will determine whether or not your greatest spiritual need will be met. And so this first group, they have the blessing of believing in Jesus and having their great spiritual need met by Jesus. But now we see a different response from the second group to this amazing miracle that clearly reveals who Jesus is. Verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So some of the people who see this amazing miracle who watch what Jesus does for Lazarus, instead of believing in him, they run to the Pharisees and they tell the Pharisees what Jesus has just done. And we don't know the motivation in this. We could read something negative. We could read something positive. We're not sure. They might have just been like, you guys need to know what happened. This is amazing. Or they might be like, man, you need to know what happened. We got to do something with this guy. We don't know, know why they were there, but we do know the response of the Pharisees because we're told what they do. They gather a council. So the religious leaders now get together after hearing this news. And this is what they say. What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice as the religious leaders meet to decide what they're going to do with Jesus and his miraculous power that continues to grow they make a very important admission. They admit that Jesus works many signs, and these miraculous signs are going to cause many people, they actually use the word everyone, who's there in the nation of Israel to believe in him. And what they're saying is that the amazing miracles that Jesus can do, like raise Lazarus from the dead, are going to cause Jews to hear and to believe that he is the Messiah that he is God, because they're going to recognize only God could do that. And so this is an amazing admission from these religious leaders. They realize what Jesus has done, the miracles that he's able to do, is going to cause everyone to believe that he's the Messiah. That they're making this connection. They realize his miracles prove that. And it's interesting, just back in chapter 10, remember when Jesus was having this debate with these guys, he's like, you know what, don't believe me just because I call myself the Messiah or I say that I'm the Son of God. Believe the works themselves. Look at what I do, because what I do is the greatest proof that what I say is true. And now they're agreeing with that. Jesus' works of miracles are going to cause people to believe in him because they're going to recognize what he does proves who he is. But here's the sad reality. Why won't the religious leaders believe in Jesus? 
If they can come to this conclusion, if they can realize all the Jews are going to believe in him, why aren't you part of that group? If you understand that what he does demonstrates who he is, then why aren't you the first people to say, we should go and we should bow down and we should believe and we should give our life to him? From their own admission, there's plenty of evidence, but they won't believe. You know, the main reason they won't believe is because they're hard-hearted. They don't need more evidence. They got everything that they need in order to believe, but they choose not to because they're hard-hearted and choose to reject the clear evidence of who Jesus is. Because they won't believe in Jesus, they cannot have their greatest spiritual need met. This is such a sad reality for them, not only because Jesus has just powerfully demonstrated who He is, that people have come and declared that, that they have this council meeting, and even in the meeting, they admit the fact that what Jesus does proves who He is, and yet in all of it, they're still willing to say, we will not believe. Because of that, they will not be saved from their sins. Well, this brings us to the fourth important and amazing thing about Jesus I want you to note. Jesus has the authority to meet our greatest spiritual need, but we must believe in Him for that to happen. The greatest demonstration of Jesus' authority, if you're wondering, how can I be confident that He has the authority, that He has the power to meet my spiritual need, to meet the fact that I am a sinful person and need salvation, how can I be confident of that? Well, we look to the cross. Because that is where the authority and the power are so clearly displayed and demonstrated to us that Jesus there took our sin, there He took the consequence of our sin so that you and I could escape that. He paid the penalty that you and I should have to pay. He took it upon Himself so that we could be forgiven and so that we could escape the judgment of God that we deserve. But the only way that we can receive that salvation which is our greatest spiritual need, is if we choose to believe in who Jesus is and what He's done for us. The wonderful truth is Jesus has done all the work. It's like, I've done it all. I came to this earth. I groaned. I was angry with indignation of what sin and death were doing. And so I took it upon myself to give my life to deal with the sin problem of the world and to deal with the death problem. More importantly, not the physical, but the spiritual death in hell. I took it so that you could be set free, and all I require of you is to place your belief in who I am and what I've done. Now the fact that people are going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because of the miracles that he did, that's just one area that the religious leaders were upset with. And that's more of the area of their own jealousy, more of the area of their own power and control that they would realize we will lose to Jesus because people are going to flock to him and no longer to us. But they had another concern And this was a legitimate concern. It was a concern about what the Romans would do. We're told the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now remember, the Jews are under Roman occupation. And the Romans are trying everything they can to make sure there's not some kind of Jewish revolt, which you know happened many times. And so the Romans know the Jews are waiting for their Messiah. And according to the Jews, the Messiah was going to be someone who was going to help overthrow Rome. And so Rome is hearing this. 
And so if Jesus' popularity starts to grow and more and more Jews come and flock and declare Him as the Messiah, thinking He's going to be the one to help them overthrow Rome, and Roman soldiers and Roman governors like Pontius Pilate get word of that, well, they're going to deal with that. And they're going to deal with that in a harsh way. You look at how Rome dealt with things. They were quite brutal. They crushed things before they could get going. And so there's a legitimate concern here where they're saying, hey, if Rome thinks that Jesus is the Messiah and a threat to them, we're going to lose two things. Our place, speaking of our temple, and our nation, speaking of us as people. And that wasn't some, you know, out of the, you're like, whoa, that's, that's an extreme thought. No, Rome could do that to them. And so it was a, a legitimate fear that they were concerned about. And so that's another issue. They're thinking, well, man, <laughs> Jesus is not only a problem to us and our, and our power and our leadership over the Jews because they would leave us to go follow him. He's also a problem with our oppressors because if they think he's an issue, they're going to come after all of us, not just him. Well, that leads the high priest to say something very important about Jesus, even though he wasn't actually saying it in the way that he thought he was. Verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So as the religious leaders are worried about Jesus' popularity, if people believe he's the Messiah, and how Rome would respond if people started following Jesus as the Messiah, Caiaphas, in the meeting of these religious leaders, he addresses as the high priest this group, and notice what he brings up to them. You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas, in response to their fear of what Rome would do, he's declaring that it's expedient for the Jews that one man, speaking of Jesus, should die for the people instead of the whole nation perishing. Now Caiaphas is meaning we should kill Jesus to protect the Jewish nation, to protect the temple. If we think Rome would, would come after us and destroy our temple and our nation, well then we should just kill Jesus. Better that he dies than the rest of us. That's what Caiaphas is meaning here. But notice that John tells us something. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. What John is telling us is that Caiaphas in his role as high priest, he is giving an unconscious and involuntary prophecy. He's not standing there thinking, oh, the Lord has given me this word for all of you to hear. You know, we're going to sacrifice Jesus because he's the Savior and he's going to sacrifice himself for the world. He's thinking, no, we're going to kill Jesus in order to protect ourselves from Rome. But the way in which he speaks it, and you read the words, you realize, wow, this is a powerful truth. And John's saying, actually, it was this unconscious prophecy that God spoke through him of what Jesus actually was going to do. It's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that not the whole nation should perish. Well, that's exactly what happens. One man, Jesus, does die for the people, so that the whole nation wouldn't perish in their sins. And this is a powerful thing 
that transpires. But notice that John goes on to say, and even that doesn't go far enough. And not only for that nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And this is something that we've seen, that the Jews were, yeah, we understand the Messiah is coming for us, to save us, to protect us, to deliver us. There was no we in the sense of anyone else. Gentile world, yeah, they're, 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 he's not coming for them. It was very much, a, it's only the nation of Israel that he's going to come and give himself for, come and do things for, and they miss it. And John's saying, yeah, Jesus did sacrifice himself for the nation of Israel, but not just for that nation, but for everyone. That the blessing of the cross wasn't just for Jews, it was for anyone, for you and for me. But the reality is, the only way that we can benefit from what Jesus did on the cross is if we believe in who He is. You know, the sacrifice is so amazing. When we look at what He did, when we look at what it demonstrates, when we look at the power that's associated with it, when we look at the love that clearly is shown from it, it's an amazing thing. And when we look at the results of you know, forgiveness of sin and eternity in heaven, all of that is so wonderful and powerful. But the reality is, it does you absolutely no good because none of those things are yours until you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can just look and say, well, that's nice for others because it's not going to be for me until I'm willing to choose to believe in Him. And we see these two groups. You had the group that did believe in Him, and their greatest spiritual need was met. But unfortunately, we also have the group that even though the overwhelming evidence was there, they still chose to harden their hearts and say, you know what, I'm not going to believe. And sadly, I'm sure that many of them died in that unbelief. And the consequence for that was eternal. So you benefit only through your belief in Jesus. You know, in a moment, we're going to pass out communion Because for those of us who have already placed our faith in Jesus, this is just a wonderful time to look back to the cross and just to remember what a sacrifice that was for us. To thank Him for what He did for us. To remember the love that was demonstrated for us.